We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Craig Doig, co-founder of Marquee, a new communications platform for companies to communicate and collaborate under their own brand. Craig is now on his seventh startup. He started out wanting to be an artist and earning a degree in animation. This was partially motivated, he says, by wanting to rebel against his father's more boots-on-the-ground worldview. Craig was also tapped for management and soon moved into founding his first company, working in the film business in operational consulting. When his future wife got a job in Delaware, Craig moved with her from L.A., where by chance he ran into into his previous co-founders, who invited him to work with them in his current company. Craig was also helming a spinoff company specializing in digital signage. When COVID hit, though, he had to pivot. Marquee was born as a way to provide more secure ways for teams to communicate online. After obtaining venture capital funding, Marquee has been figuring out its path to growth, at first by trying to enter a variety of markets. Craig believes right now focusing on a niche, which is telehealth, is the way to go because that is what Marquee can offer more in an industry. Now, let's get better together. Craig Doig. Welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Well, you're quite welcome. Um, you're the co-founder of Marquee. Um, and this is actually your sixth, right? If I'm not mistaken? Yes, to some degree. Uh, wow. <laughs> Six startups. I'm, I'm kind of sort of, I think, working on my seventh. But uh, I think everyone, like if you're an entrepreneur, everyone knows, right? Like you always got some side hustle going on. It could go somewhere or go nowhere. That's right. <laughs> As you know. So lo- love to talk a little bit more about Marquee, kind of 
what you're doing. I think we talked a little bit ahead of time. This is like your first VC backed one, which is always interesting to kind of talk about the differences between the kind of bootstrapping slash self-funding slash what the people in the VC world call lifestyle business, <laughs> as opposed to like, you mean all the corporate crappy money you're going to give me because I'm going to have to grow and you're going to like crush me if I don't, you know, that thing. But before we get into all that great stuff, as I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Well, I, I often joke uh, that I fell backwards into marquee. Um, I don't think uh, I set out to be an entrepreneur initially or to even build uh, a company, let alone a, a SaaS software business. Um, in fact, I started at an art school uh, studying animation. Um, I really wanted to have a trade. I really wanted to rebel as a young man. And, uh, and uh, my father was kind of a, you know, a, a down to earth, operations, you know, boots on the ground kind of guy, um, worked in manufacturing. And I said, I, I, I got to do something creative. Um, I rebel, I go out, I start my animation career right after university. And uh, within about three months, they say, mm, you need to be managing the team. Your, your mind works a little bit differently. And I, I said, no, no way. That's, that's not for me. But sure enough, uh, a knack for spreadsheets and little SaaS tools to build nice Kanbans and all of that uh, was kind of exciting and almost gave me the same thrill as, you know, digital animation. And uh, uh, before long, I, I ran a couple of production houses, um, worked with some staffing agencies, some news agencies, uh, worked on some documentary films, some narrative films, and really centered my, my uh, career around uh, basically the entertainment industry and producing and operational consulting. And one day I uh, met my wife in Los Angeles. She said, I got to go to Delaware. I got a, I got a job there. And I said, Delaware, is, is that a state or is it like a territory, you know? And she goes, yeah, it's, but it's on the East coast. We'll get out there and, uh, and, and we'll have fun. I promise. So I, I, I I find myself in Delaware twiddling my thumbs. I'm walking down the road one day and uh, I bump into my co-founder. Uh, he says, hey, I run the biggest production house in Delaware and uh, I, I'd love some help, uh, you know, after a, a coffee. He said, it sounds like your background, you could really help me. And I said, well, this, this is interesting. I mean, I didn't really have a, you know, an, um, I didn't really have a, a focus at that point. Um, and I think that that's like kind of a healthy way to live. And we can jump into that later. But uh, he says, he says, help me. I say, cool, we're working. He's got a Fortune 500 company that he's working with as a client. And uh, they had somehow built a software for this Fortune 500 company, even though their production house, it was a delivery tool for their media. And I said, this is really interesting. And around the time the pandemic happened, um, I said, I like this so much. I think we should spin it off. We should go do something else. And it was essentially a digital signage company, if you will, like cloud-based digital signage, really the delivery of this, this media. And uh, we did that. And about two weeks later, uh, lockdown. And I said, oh, well, I've quit. I've quit my job. <laughs> There's a lockdown. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to have any use for digital signage. 
Uh, but we had this infrastructure. We had a couple coders. Our, my, my two co-founders both have a background in coding originally. Um, we said, well, we have all these clients. We're all locked down. We all need to do something. We took that infrastructure and we began to build on it in a totally white labeled events platform, communication platform. Uh, and over the last two years, I've we've slowly listened to our customers. We've kind of, you know, uh, let the wind kind of blow us left and right. And we ended up building this the communication tool. And that was the most long-winded way in which I could have said, how do I find myself here? What am I doing? I Today I work at Marquee and I'm, I kind of captain the ship here and we help people communicate. <laughs> wow. That's great. It's, but you know, the story starts out like all great stories. I met a girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, the career or a partner crazy. or a boy. It's like, a, it's like the best setup. Like, well, I met this girl and she said, <laughs> and I changed my whole career and changed my whole life. And what do you know? Here I am. <laughs> right. 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 It's the randomness of life sometimes I think is really fascinating. And I think as entrepreneurs, I think we're a little more open to the sort of I wouldn't say not having a plan, but being able to, I think it's see the opportunity that's put in front of us. Like, cause that's can be risky, right? Like, okay, I go to this new state, like, what am I going to do? And then all of a sudden you bump into a co-founder and you're like, well, let's do something together. Like it's pretty, it's at least I've found this and I'd love, love to see your, hear your thoughts on it. Um, that it's when you're open to the opportunity, the opportunity comes to you or more importantly, when opportunities are coming at you, you can see them, which I think that's a uniquely entrepreneur trait. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I think, you know, I think entrepreneurs fall into two classes and I, I think one is the, the entrepreneur who has this great idea and wants to solve a very specific problem. Right. And, you know, they're almost in some ways ready to die for it. Right. And I, and, <laughs> die for and, I, I, and I love that. And I think that that's incredible. And sometimes I wish I was one of those folks. I because I I'd say the other type of entrepreneur, uh, uh, you know, an opportunist is maybe not the right choice of word, but someone who, you know, I just want to help people solve problems, but I'm not sure if I care what those problems are, as long as they see some kind of, you know, measurable, uh, positive outcome or positive result, um, you know, in, in their business or their life. And the two often are intertwined. Um, I think that um, I knew nothing about software. And I think a lot of people out there might know nothing about the potential field that they'll fall into and, you know, how, privileged or, or awesome is it to, to be in a position in which I could take advantage of that. That said, um, if, if, if sometimes it just makes sense and sometimes you just fall backwards into it. And I, I think more often than not the idea or the universe or however you want to say it, the people around you, they can almost place you in a better position than you can. And, uh, and and really lead you into it. And what I mean is clients, customers, potential customers, potential business opportunities. When you are receptive, I mean, hey, let's, I've got a digital signage company. 
that sounds cool. Is it sellable? Well, kind of, maybe. What do you think? I think I have some ideas for how we, we could sell that. And and thus you you now your digital side is your SaaS entrepreneur. Yeah. 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 No, no, it's interesting that, that you say that because I think it applies also to writing books. It was super fascinating because I have a bunch of author friends because I've written a bunch of books. In fact, this podcast is based on the book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, that I, I published back in 2017. And I just launched a new book called Story Driven Outreach. And I did it completely different. I literally did it exactly the way you fell into Marquee. I'm like, God, I want to write another book. And I'm like, but I don't know really what to write. And normally I would write what I want to read, which honestly, not a lot of people want to buy. <laughs> right. And, and I'm thinking, okay, like I've done, that was my seventh book. So I've done all these books and they're marginally successful. Like, you know, they're, and it's a process. It's like anything, right? You shots on goal. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, this time I should actually figure out what people want to read. And since I have this PR and marketing company, I'm like, what do people always ask me about? Like, what's the one piece of advice everyone always wants to know? And they're like, Jari, how do you write cold emails that get results? And I'm like, really? Like, that's so simple. And then I'm thinking, no, it's not. You just do it every day, <laughs> right? And so it's the same thing. Like my friend um, Farzad, who I've um, had on the show, he had a company called Respana. He, he just literally formed this company, Respana, and it came out of what he did at a company called Visme. And Visme is like a Canva competitor, and I'm sure they'll hate me for saying that. They always want me to try it, and I'm like, well, I'm on Canva. Like, how, you know, it's hard to get me out, right? I'm like, I'm a creature of habit, right? But how they grew Visme was through outreach and very considerate. Like, they did a lot of really good outreach and PR, like really solid. And they're like, oh, we need to build. They built a tool like what you did. And then they're like, this tool, the world needs to see this. And they spun it out and created their own thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, who knows? But I, but I think what, what you and Farzad and me have in common, and I think most entrepreneurs have this in common, it's like what you said, being open to solving the problem. And, the, and, and like a lot of people think that way, but then, then I think the entrepreneur is going to be like, well, how do I solve this profitably for me and my investors? which a lot of tech folk, they don't get that right. <laughs> they don't. So it's fascinating. I, I, love, I love the origin story of that because I think a lot of times finding the need and filling it, even if it's something you're not like super passionate about, I think you find the passion in that. And I'm, I'm curious, like you're not a SaaS folk guy, you're like, you know, this digital artist, animation, done a lot of cool stuff. How was that? Like, do you now find the passion in it or how does that work? Well, I think to kind of elaborate on that kind of second entrepreneurial path, uh, you know, you ever just, you know, I was thinking I was in Japan recently with my wife on our honeymoon, I guess two years ago, not recently, but, you know, COVID recently. COVID um, recently, yeah. Uh, and of course, we're there to celebrate, you know, our, our love and do all of this romantic stuff and have dinner together. And I find us, you know, at two in the morning at an arcade with these little token machines, just trying to win, like, you know, these little ski balls, get the little ball in the hole, win the tickets. And, 
And we were just so focused and so dedicated. And for a moment, our entire life was just like absorbed in this. And it was, it was our purpose. And, you know, I find that if you're just willing to kind of let go, this job, this kind of this, this pursuit, you know, my, this ass business I'm working on, it becomes my passion the same way. And I can find these little wins in it. And, you know, eventually it's hitting those dopamine triggers and, you know, you're excited. But I think more so, you know, what really has driven me at least is the feedback from customers who feel like they've had their problem solved, like their pain points been heard, it's been addressed. Um, they can pick up the phone, uh, you know, and call myself or, you know, some, you know, one of our partners and say, hey, look, like, I noticed your software does this and I really I really think it should do X, Y, and Z. And maybe, maybe that makes it into our product development. And then you get an email back and it's like, oh my gosh, you've saved me 87 hours a month, you know, and that, that in itself becomes the motivator. I think, you know, you can just let yourself in the moment become kind of transfixed with something and enjoy it for what it is. And uh, sure, you know, eventually it might come to an end or you might let it go or make an exit or whatever it is, but I don't think it has any less meaning Um just because it was something that kind of appeared from nowhere, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting. Because I'm, I'm trying to remember, because you've done six companies, I've done six companies, and I'm, I'm trying to, I was like, as you were talking, I was like going through like how they all kind of came together. And <clears throat> it was all pretty much a random event, being at the right place at the right time and being open to this like wacky idea that no one thinks this is going to work. Well, let's see if we can give it a shot, you know, and that openness, I think to change, I think that openness to trying something new, <clears throat> I think that's, do you think that's part of your design and kind of artistic background? Cause what I found with authors is, I mean, clearly they can write and they'll write, 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 write forever. But when it comes to the marketing and the business side, they just kind of completely fall apart. <laughs> You know, and I always tell them, it's like, well, half the battle's writing a book. The other half the battle's getting somebody to read it. Same with a company. Half the battle's building it. The other half's getting someone to buy it. And so do you think your training as an artist and that creative side, get, I mean, because it's non-intuitive that I would think that you would be more amendable to be like the business side of things. I'm just curious because it's a, that's like a non-standard path. I, I I think, you know, I was always trying to be an artist. I don't know if I was an artist. I think, you know, I have a very analytical mind and I, I, I really love the idea of, you know, trolling through data and building out like a nice robust marketing plan and looking at keywords, what's performing, getting that click-through rate down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but having, you know, I think that rebellion piece of my personality as a, as a young man that pushed me into wanting to be an artist exposed me to an entire segment of the population that thinks totally differently than I do on every level. I mean, the idea that you could start a painting in the studio and leave it for 17 weeks unfinished, right, and, and not get the idea out just kind of perplexed me. And I, and I kind of saw this, you know, weird way of deriving meaning or uh, 
uh, even um, motivation from like these weird, these weird methods, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, smoking something special out back behind the, the, the art studio or, you know, at the bar or uh, surfing or whatever it might be. And I don't think I had considered that as, as a young guy. And I think bringing those um, as much as I could have until I, until I said, I'm, I must rebel. And I think coming into this, to the, to the SAS world or to this business world and being open-minded to like the plight of an engineer from the perspective of an artist allows you this kind of flexibility. And, and I guess in some ways, like the ability to be patient and have like, you know, a little bit of grace when someone comes to you and they're like, holy, you know, here it is. This is amazing. And you're like, oh my gosh, I, I, this needs so much more refinement. It needs so, so much more of this. And rather than saying like, get back in there and, and go for it. It's like, uh, Hey, how about a week off? Like, have you considered going to the mountains or something and being able to like, let them have that come back and just saying like, I'm going to let go of the entire creative process of this. Um, I, I don't know. I think that, I think that has some positive benefits. I, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. No, because I, you know, I always say that entrepreneurs are sort of the creatives and the artists of the business world. And it's interesting because like, again, my artist friends that are real, like artists, fine artists, but mostly authors, like, you know, as entrepreneurs, we know we need to make money at something like that's just, it's in our, it's in our DNA. Like, okay, well, I have an idea. I can do the idea as a side hustle, but eventually the hustle needs to be, okay, is anyone going to buy this? And for us, it's very clear, like absolutely. Even from a creative perspective, like we tend to have creativity on a deadline. Like that whole, like having a painting sit in a studio for 17 weeks would drive me insane. I'd be like, ship the dumb thing already. Right. And I think that's the mode, that's the difference I see. And, and it sounds like it's the same thing with you. It's like creativity on a deadline seems to be the entrepreneur trait that not a lot of other artists have. I, I think the business folks focus on deadlines in a, in a strange way. Um, I think that painting, to go back to the painting metaphor, it's there for 17 weeks, but you and I both know that we have to sell that painting in four. And we know that because uh, we looked at our burn spreadsheet, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. It, the, the, the numbers aren't going up, they're going down. <laughs> And I think it's the job, the creative job of the entrepreneur, the, the leader here to come in and say, hey, look, like, how do I expedite 17 weeks of creative problem solving thinking, you know, whether that be surfing or drinking or trips or family time or whatever it is. And I think that like, I think that there's a certain amount of, uh, I mean, it's, compassion maybe is the right word that's required as an entrepreneur to, uh, where you come in, you take a, take a look at the situation. You understand how difficult it is to solve the impossible, right? Or to invent something from scratch, you know, something from nothing. And you say, you know, can I like sit down with this person and understand really what they need in a healthy way and what I can get to them and then take it upon myself to deliver that, whether it be, you know, lunch, right? You know, they're they're in the, the you know, just stopping to pick up lunch on the way to the office if you're running a, a really small shop or like 
donuts in the morning. I mean, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the tech industry throws a ping pong table at it, but um, I think there's this, you know, the name, you know, knowing their name, knowing their family, knowing the experiences they have, how they function. I, I think it's critical and not in some shallow or like give them a Myers-Briggs test kind of way, but really, really sitting down with them and being frank and, and clear. I think that's kind of the key to get it for, to get in four weeks. And it's like, okay, hop in the car, we're going to the beach and walking and talking and really putting in that time with them. I think that's how you, how you pull it out of them. But I think that's difficult to translate or, or communicate to like other entrepreneurs. And once your business scales, it's a little bit more difficult to think like that. But, you know, at least the, the root level of your thinking should always be there. Like, I think it's the same with customers too. I think that same kind of process, you know, you almost, I wouldn't say you drag it out of them, but I, I don't know how many times I've been in like a customer interview meeting where we're, I don't remember what we were trying to do, but like the nuggets of how someone uses something, how you think they use it and how they actually use it is like night and day. You know, it, it, it's almost like to, to your point, like there's certain things that you just have to kind of do in order to kind of have the process. And it could be kind of non-intuitive. I mean, mostly engineers, right? They they are basically performance-based. They're sort of like, look at what I can do. Whereas the, I think the creative process is not only look what I can do, but I have to step away from it so that I can actually know what to do. Like we talked a little bit earlier about this today. Uh, before we started hit recordings, like I have this thing, I have to do integration on it. And my integration is either take a nap or go walk around <laughs> because I have to get space. I think the space is what creatives, that's, I think what real create, what, what creativity on a deadline understands the space things have to take up and also move, like you mentioned, moving away from it so that you can come back to it. Um and without space, you get things like, you know, Microsoft Teams, <laughs> right? I oh, mean, don't get me started on that. But that's, that, but that's right. The- Read. Oh, I have to tell they have the worst onboarding. And the I tried to actually, I had to buy PowerPoint. Okay. I had to buy PowerPoint. It took them an hour to activate my account. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, I need it now. And it was the worst possible scenario i was so upset like this is the worst thing who yeah you're right <laughs> i mean look they're big unmovable mountains and i i can't I imagine agree. running an organization that no, big no, but what i can say is like creativity on a deadline right that's what happens when you say ah you've got four weeks um you know communicate with the faceless machine and uh deliver and that's it. And you just kind of leave it there. And I think, I think it produces results like that, you know, not, but one could argue uh, just like every other product, you know, in a, in a similar space or they got the revenue. Yeah. They were they, looking for. Yeah. But I think I'll challenge you a little bit on that one. I think for them. And again, I think this is how a company, when a company gets to that scale, like they didn't invent the team's concepts right? They basically realized, oh shit, we got to copy someone because we're getting our lunch eaten. Like Google is crushing us. You know, and even Google's not that great. I mean, everyone's like, oh, Gmail, what a wonderful thing. Like really? Like Gmail is the thing that you're like, it's email and still broken. 
or calendar. That's the other thing. How come someone can't build a better calendar? It's, it's all broken. Like even Calendly, which I love, broken. Everything's broken. All this calendar stuff's broken because everyone's like, oh, we'll just make a better little thing in the game, you know? Um, but I think what's interesting about that is like you kind of find the niche, like Teams as an example. Like every government agency I've ever talked to and ever had to interact with, they're on Teams. Big companies, they're on Teams, right? Small companies, okay, they're on maybe Google, right? And then, of course, probably more creative or more agency or whatever are on Marquee, right? So are you how, are you finding how that sort of splits out? Because people would argue, oh, yet another collaboration tool. But as you mentioned, <laughs> I mean, some of them are horrible. <laughs> like, there's always going to be something to fill a need of something. And I, I'm just curious, like, what what like need what niche does marquee fit in because i think this is a interesting way of how it evolves you know i would say you found me an interesting time to ask that question jerry oh okay i uh you know we're we're vc funded um we've only raised our seed round but we had our pre-seed and our seed you know backed by vc and uh that's a question we've been asking ourselves the last few months as we've really like looked to build a horizontal tool initially. And as we started to dive into niches, um, you start to realize that until you're, you know, seven, eight figures of revenue, you're not competing, you know, well, uh, in the advertising game, the Google surf space, you know, you know, LinkedIn. Um, and really, it's nearly impossible unless, you know, some little niche audience grabs you to become a product-led company. So you're all sales-led growth. And I guess, you know, it's a long way to kind of, to beat around the bush to say, we think we're finding our niche now, but we had to kind of poke 47 verticals. Wow. And we think, uh, you know, telehealth is probably a really interesting space for us. Um, but we think the one thing we had found to solve, if you will, the problem that we solved initially, at least for, our, you know, all of our, all of our early customers was took a look at all the cloud tools and we said, can you like put your logo on all of these and take the logo of the, co the other company off of it? And we found actually, no, you can put your logo on Zoom if you pay for the little upgrade, but you're still in Zoom, right? Zoom's still in the top left corner. It's still in the little icon on the bottom. You're still going to a Zoom web address. And, you know, with lots of tools out there, you can add your own subdomain. Mm -hmm. We said, well, could we simplify the process like Gmail where you had a C name and you just mm -hmm. give them an actual domain? Yeah. And that's that's really the, the angle that we took is like, let's solve like something. Let's give ownership to cloud-based tools. So Marquee originally, right out of the box, was a fully white-labeled tool, mm -hmm. right? But that presents a whole you know, can't, you know, oh, it's a whole can of worms when oh, it comes yeah. to like the network effect or, or, you know, I mean, or, yeah, that's, it's a tough, that's a tough road. Yeah. But, you know, that said, that was the problem we were solving, you know, with not-for-profits, with uh, big corporations, you know, I mean, anywhere from like disabilities, charities, all the way to like ballets, ch county chambers, you know, all of these little niches and, and fortune 500 companies it's like man just putting your name on it was like enough 
And I think, you know, as we've kind of built the tool out, we were trying to stay totally horizontal the entire, the entire time. And I think what we realized, you know, is that we were listening to our customers, which is really cool. You could say that, wow, we're product like growth, amazing. But we're listening to 40 verticals, mm. right? And every little iteration we made collided in some way with another vertical. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's difficult, but to, you know, so I would say, to be honest, I don't know if we've like solved the niche situation yet. I don't know if we solved that. We have two or three niches, like in the healthcare space, mainly because we provide like a end-to-end encrypted mm-hmm. video mm-hmm. chat and then, you know, encrypted internal comms. And there's mm-hmm. no one in that space that does that at all. Like there is no Slack for healthcare. There's no teams right. for healthcare. And if they are using it, typically they're using it in a, a very inadequate and yeah, maybe yeah. one would say dangerous way. Yeah. I mean, um, even, even WebEx is which touts its encryption and security. Nah, still not as, not as good. Yeah. And, and that's like an interesting niche and we play pretty well with agencies and production houses mm-hmm. because we mm-hmm. allow you to spend up, you know, customized links or chat rooms, similar to like Slack connect yeah. uh, mm-hmm. for each of your, each of your clients. But the problem we solved there was very specific as well, which was we don't charge for guests. So when your clients sign up, they don't have to sign up to Marquee to become a member of your space. They sign up to your space. You don't pay for them. They don't pay for themselves. You know, have you ever been added to Slack Connect Room, Jerry? Oh, yeah. And it's like 280 days later, you get a little email that says, if you don't pay $3 or $6 a month, you're going to lose access to your Slack Connect Room. And you're like, I thought that was free. I thought it was free. Yeah. And it's yeah. Like, yeah. So, those are problems we could solve. I don't know if we, you know, I don't know with a three to five person dev team, if you can ever like iterate into something that, that solves a problem, you know, we're going from two to 2.5, not two to three. Yeah. And I, yeah. In several spaces. But I mean, it's interesting though, because the whole kind of beachhead, you know, riches are in the niches thing. Russell Brunson always says that I've read like, I think one of his books about, you know, his whole funnel thing. Uh, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> but I think you're right. I mean, below 10 million in revenue, maybe you got to be niched. I don't think you can play the ad game. I, honestly, my philosophy is you can't play the ad game until you're like, can spend a million bucks on it. I think it's just way too hard. That's like, that's 10% of revenue. That's huge. I mean, I just, it's just too hard. It's so arbitraged out, you know? I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that because I think with venture backed companies there, you know, they want you to grow, 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 grow. And that can be, <clears throat> that's the reason why you get the money to like <laughs> give it to Facebook and Google. <laughs> that's right. Um <laughs> That's right. I don't. I almost don't know what to say. Um, yeah, you know, we were at I don't know, maybe like four k MMR when we started talking to VC companies, investors, um, which is nothing, right? You know, we're looking at a cool forty eight a year, fifty sixty a year, somewhere in there, and. Yeah. You know, we're sitting there going, we're going to change the world. And we're pitching this horizontal play. And they're like, yeah, horizontal. That's where you want to be. Right. And we get real jazzed up and yeah. and we go into it and we spend a year 
trying to push it horizontal and sure we acquire customers but we acquire them at an insane cost yeah, of acquisition the CAC, yeah the cac's just insane we had no understanding after you know maybe like 18 months of running a business or 16 months of running a business as to what what space we could dominate or what space we could own and we certainly cannot afford to buy clicks in those niches uh unless unless we are 100 confident in our market fit mm -hmm. and yeah i think you know because we're buying you know zoom's just buying clicks in that space yeah right you know and and they're they are horizontal play um yeah, they so didn't start out that way though that's the thing right education's <laughs> where they started yeah and it was just simple like i mean the guy that founded zoom was from was from cisco I think even, you know, and yeah, so it's like, well, this WebEx thing's garbage. I mean, it, you know, no offense, but it is. It's not that great. I mean, it's better now, but like they want it that way, right? That's right. And I think, I think you know, we, we're considering actually moving into telehealth exclusively. Yeah. Just because we look at tools like Doxy and we say, wow, that's yeah. like an, it's an interesting tool or like simple, simple health. Um, yeah. They're not pretty. They're not very robust at all. They offer almost no feature sets beyond. And it's like, it's interesting. We thought we would change the whole communication space horizontally when we started. That was, you know, we were in Of course, yeah. Rule the world. But at this point, we're like, I think we have to go find like telehealth folks and bring them from 1998 to like 2005. And then, you know, we can start to look at this horizontally. Um, and there are a few spaces that are still like that, that haven't really considered their tech stacks and maybe, you know, I mean, teletherapy, I mean, when we say telehealth, it's like teletherapy is interesting because telehealth clinics have like spun exploded. up here in COVID yeah. and exploded. Yeah. yeah. But most folks have been using some kind of like integrated telehealth solution tied into their CRM that uses like Amazon Chime. Or, or their or, or their or their H their HMS their health management system. I, right. I used yeah you, so I used to I used to I was the founder of this company called Lab Central Solutions, which tracked the temperature and location of clinical samples so they don't spoil. So we were all into the LIS lab information system. The whole literally healthcare is thirty years behind being gracious to them about the crazy stuff that they do and digital health telehealth. You know, obviously during COVID exploded. Um, but there's a huge opportunity there because not, not a lot of people do it well because they don't have the attitude of taking what you guys are doing and thinking more of the user experience. It's almost like an afterthought bolt-on. That's right. Literally, like, oh, we have to do it. You know, we'll just bolt it on. I mean, it, it, it's really fascinating though because the same the, the problems that telehealth has are the problems that other people have, they're just at a little higher level of like security and, you know, complete uh, being compliant and being able to hook into the health record, which is super critical. Like right. that, the integration into like Epic and all these other massive, like, and those companies have been around for decades and their integration and they're built on cobalt, like kind of thing. <laughs> it's that bad. Like you're just like, how can this even function? Um, you know, digital health records or um, electronic health health records and stuff. I think for me, when I when I we looked at all this, it's it's going to be the emergence of the boutique telehealth 
digital health, like carbon, one medical, like you see it. I mean, in San Francisco, we see it because this is where they all start, but people are willing to pay a premium for better service and a better experience. And honestly, over time, healthcare is going to have to have, have to reconcile that because there's going to be a point where you're not going to have the monopoly power you have because people are just fed up. They're like, how come healthcare goes up 10% a year, no matter what? It's like, it's like the cost of an education. That's the other one. Education is another huge one. It's like, how come the education just keeps on going up when it should go down? And then you see these, you know, like, I don't know how much even a four-year degree is anymore, but like, that's got to be disrupted because there's people, there's kids with what? 100 grand, 200 grand in debt? For what? You know? You know, I, I think it might play into a bigger, uh, you know, the idea of consolidation is interesting to me because like consolidation doesn't mean like rolling it up into one product, right? It's just consolidation of individual small organizations. And I, and I kind of like that, but I think, you know, up until four or five years ago, I mean, the Facebook model dominated, right? Like we're going to aggregate everyone into one network. Um, they're going to, you know, that's why I kind of think meta was a little tone deaf. I know it might be like sacrilegious to say that. No, no, like, I think it's, I think it's silly, but I, I, I thought Bitcoin like, was silly too. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I think of it like this, you know, Discord is the perfect representation of the future, right? Which is like little niche communities. It's not Facebook. They live on maybe, maybe they could live on one platform, but they likely live on individual, you know, lots of many, many, many platforms. Mm -hmm. And they're going to, you're, you're really going to niche down. I think that like, we are kind of tired of, 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 of looking at it. Yeah. As you know, these massive conglomerates that are, you know, conglomerate, <laughs> conglomerates <laughs> um, that kind of own one segment. And I, I, I think we have to niche down. I think it's, it's like a, it's like a yo-yo if you will. And I think we'll come back and I think there's space for marquee and that's, what's going to happen to telehealth too. Mm -hmm. These, these big insurance companies are going to be broken down in these small community payer systems as they destroy the line, you know, the geographical lines, just like the telecoms industry did about, 18 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't know if you remember, we're paying yep. like a 18 yep. cents a text message. And now yeah. we're paying $18 a month for unlimited, unlimited everything. Yeah, it's crazy. No, I agree. I think I think the thing I see, and, and this is actually being driven by, I think, two major factors. First, I think people want to get back to community, their local community. It's very powerful. Like all politics is local is, is, you know, the term that most people use. And it's true. I think everything is like, what's my environment? And as people really sort through the pandemic and its long lasting effects, you're going to see, I mean, you see it, you saw it, you saw it during the 2016 election in terms of nationalism, where people wanted to be like proud Americans, as an example, that is going to continue on. And it's not going to be as I think is nefarious per se, like, cause there's problems with that because of the me versus them, but communities matter and people are going to start looking around going, how can I improve my community? And that's not going to be some massive conglomerate that's taken all the, the cash away from, you know, my local community that I care about. And I think you're going to see that more and more. And I think a, a way to have people own that experience and own that community and have their own destiny 
I think people are just sick of the getting it shoved down their throat. Like, I mean, you see it with even, you know, Apple's, you know, stops with the whole cookie thing, right? Like Facebook's business models going away. Google right. going to go away. Why is that? People are sick of having their data sold. They're sick of not being looking out for them. Like what's in it for me? I mean, that seems a little selfish, but then again, you're making all this money off me, the 51-year-old guy that, you know, like you're you're clearly making money off my profile, what I know, what I'm into. Why can't I own that? And then more importantly, what how does it benefit the the people I care about in my my circle, right? It's not necessarily like you're gonna be, I don't think, although it may go through a transition where it's like us versus them. But no, I think I think you're I think you're onto something. I, I think it really is. Where is it going to be in the niche where we can play? And I think any 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 startup below ten million, roughly, right? You can't be all things to all people. It just won't work because you don't have enough resources to actually go fight the fight yet. So interesting. That's so fascinating, and I, I like the fact you brought up uh, product led growth because. I'm actually taking a class right now from the product life growth guys about how, you know, how great it is and everything. And it's interesting. And I, I, I you know, I, I can see some of the things. And I also notice you guys have a free demo. You can get started and everything, but I don't know. I, I think the jury's a little out on it. I like the idea, but I'm curious sort of what's your thoughts on it? Cause you're, you're sort of, you're in that spot where you're, it's like, how do I grow this thing? And, is PLG the way to go or sales led or a combo of both? I mean, I always think, you know, it's like theory is important, but like practice, <laughs> practice uh, trumps theory every time. Right. I absolutely. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people might want to hop on a podcast and say, look at all I've done. Look at my wins here. But here, here's what I'll tell you about product like growth. I, I think, you know, I think we've kind of lost this battle. I, we are in a, we are under ten million dollars, right? Like I, I think, and and I use that to set up this like little frame of. We went out and we tried to build this horizontal tool initially, right? We served twenty different customers that might come into an agency, right? Which look like all different shapes and sizes. We listened to them and we mistook having customers providing feedback that led to another customer as product led growth. When if we had taken a step back and said. Ooh, actually, these are all just referral customers, like, and it's based on human relationships. It has nothing to do with the product. We might have realized that, like, product led growth. I heard this the other day. This is this is kind of insightful, and it really, really kind of spun my world upside down. Um, do you have 500 users that turned up to use your product without you opening your mouth? Right. Because if you don't have that, then you can't pursue product like growth. And I kind of giggled and I said, so what does that mean? They're like, you know, you put the product up on a forum and all of a sudden you've got a thousand users. Right. And you say, well, who does that? And it's like, well, the point zero zero one percent of companies who succeed at product like growth. And I, I think there's almost like this, like. You're in San Francisco. I'm in Delaware. Right. <laughs> It's a different, it's a different, a different kind of world. mentality on the yeah. street here and in, in the conversations in the boardrooms, right? Which is like in in San Francisco, it's not cool to be sales led, right? 
to get the cold callers on the phone, to get the LinkedIn bots spamming off, you know, the cold email automations going. But what the, you know, you, you got to be product led because it means you've developed something so amazing that it's undeniable. And I think what, what I've kind of, you know, what we've kind of come to the conclusion of on my end is that on our end is sales led growth is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, like it's the only way under $10 million to like really put the knowledge to educate the customers about your product to really spin up growth. But you got to be focused and you got to be niched down. There are riches and niches. It's true, but you got to, you got to have a serious focus there. You only have so many dials in a day. You only have so many emails in a day um, that you can get out and you've got to be precise here. And like product led growth is something that you kind of stumble into or earn. I think you could fall backwards into it. Like I fell backwards into this. Um, and maybe that's an unpopular opinion, but I, I, I kind of see it as like this like myth in the distance, like this world in which you have this fanatical user base just appear out of nowhere. And I, you know, I think, I think at 2.5 million ARR, maybe start considering like a product led growth campaign, but until you can own the it search, yeah. yeah, until you can own search, until you can own ads, you know, display ads, whatever it might be which we're talking about being unaccessible to those under 10 million. Yeah. I'm not sure if product like growth is even a viable option or a viable play, like, unless you're lucky. Uh, yeah. That might be enough. What do you think, Jerry? Well, no, no, I know. I mean, it's interesting because, um, so Wes Bush, right? He's the guy that it's doing the class I'm in. He's like the productled.com guy. And, you know, very savvy, very like well-intentioned and his stuff's good. Like they, they did a really good job uh, of how, how this all works. Right. And there's a lot of good stuff there and, and he's got a lot of great examples. And of course, you know, in any kind of example, of course, it's the uh, survivor bias, right? It's like, oh, well, look at these guys. And, and, and I get that because you have to, what's interesting about the approach and, and, and I think, I think you're right. Until you hit product market fit, until you've gotten a good, like, like I always say, like the first salespeople are the founder, right? Like you can't hire salespeople unless the founder can actually sell this thing. Because I mean, I always say this and get a chuckle, but it's true. It's like salespeople are lazy and they're lazy, not in the sense that they're not going to work hard, is in that you have to tell them what to sell. They're not going to figure that. It's rare, very rare because you're the guy that invented the silly thing. If you can't sell it, no one can. Full stop. So yes, the S word, it's awful. But your first 50 to 100 customers, honestly, the founder's got to sell them. That's sales led. That's because you have no idea what you're doing. You're completely clueless. And I know this is just just fact, right? The rare, very rare sense where you just like hit it out the park, which hardly... I mean, yeah, you know, you could win the lottery. <laughs> it's random, right? Right. I mean, honestly, but the thing I like about product led and the attitude and the way Wes and his team talk about it is yes, ideally, if your product could sell yourself, that is the absolute big idea, North Star. Like, how cool would that be? Agreed, 100%. But the problem is getting people to actually look at your stupid thing. <laughs> How do you do that? 
And I think that's all about telling stories and you're, you're sales led, like talking to customers, like you got to have a great story. Your brand matters. So I think, yes, you can do product led and you should think about how you're going to make it really easy to onboard people, really easy to try before you buy all that stuff. Great stuff. But between zero and 10 million or zero and 5 million, somewhere south of 10 million in, in, in annual revenue. I think you're right. <laughs> That's transitional. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Is yeah, yeah. We are, you know, you come to, if you came to our website, you sign up in two seconds, you're yeah. on, you're ready to go. And yeah, yeah that's a very PLG mentality. Yeah, 100%. And 100%. I think that, yeah, it is critical, but you pass the baton. And I think some people think, you know, well, well I've got a nice website off. I've got 11 landing pages. I've got all this funnel, right? And I've done it, right? Yeah. It only takes two clicks to sign up. I've got a single sign-on. We're ready yeah. to go. It's, it's product-led. Yeah. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs make that mistake and I, I i think even we somehow made that mistake in a in a in a different way but you know coming from the service industry you know from client services it's hard not to to be sales led <laughs> you know i was always well, and, payment. i was always on the phone yeah 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 and i don't look i don't i don't i don't disagree with the thesis the hypothesis yeah. of product led i actually think he's He's right on. Like there's that's right. No doubt making the product easier to use and viral and connecting customer service and sales and marketing, more of the revenue operation side with your product side and making that really tight and getting tight feedback and building something people want to use. A hundred percent user experience, hundred percent. But the thing that I'm having a problem with is that initial like traction. I don't think you can be product-led to get product market fit. I think it takes a little bit more, like you got to hunt in the woods for that. I I think you got to do all the things to make it that way, but it's just too competitive, man. Like SaaS is commodity. Like it, it, it's saturated. Like I, I, there's, there's eight, there's 8,000 plus Marcom or Martech stack tool. There's so much out there. It's like, how do you get above the noise that, and honestly, I think it's going to get to the point, like what, what you mentioned, like you're going to have to be able to sign up in two seconds. Like that's just part of a requirement. That's just, that's just like basil. Like that doesn't matter anymore. That's done. Let's take product. Product doesn't matter anymore. Honestly, it's democratized. You can pretty much build anything. And there's a standard. If you don't hit the standard, no amount of product-led growth, sales-led. If your product like, doesn't hit the standard, no one's going to use it, right? That's so interesting. Well, hey, you know, Craig, it's just been great to talk with you. I really appreciate your time. Good luck on Marquee. Just so fascinating. I'm, I'm just so happy that we got to connect. And, you know, like you're in the trench, man. Like this is like gold. This is like the gold nuggets to be like, it's what you should really think about. There's no panacea, which I think I, I know that, but it's always good to hear it from someone else. <laughs> oh, I think, you know, the key, I think the key is just, embrace being in the trenches and try to love it for what it is um there's always another opportunity around the corner to fall back into thanks uh, so much craig for being on the show had a great conversation with you super interesting what you're doing over at marquee um i'm always into the you know niching down i think is important as a beachhead so i'm glad you guys are figuring that out now as promised here are some actionable insights that i learned from my interview with craig well, Craig didn't end up being an artist as he's first imagined. He believes his initial time around artists and creatives 
has given him a perspective to better understand the creative process, which is the key for developing products as an entrepreneur. Yeah, there's sort of, um, we talked a little bit about this, sort of the line between uh, business and creativity and being able to translate between the two. And I really think that's important because as I always say, you know, entrepreneurs are the creatives of the business world. So, you know, as you start to think about what you're good at and your role and things, you know, figure out, hey, how can I translate the creative to the business and vice versa? Or am I good at this or do I need someone else that's more creative or do I need someone that's more business focused, right? Craig recommends taking some time to get to know the people creating the product in your company. Understand how they can best support them and give them what they need to flourish. I mean, this is a pretty common thing, but I think taken to a different level, it's important to sort of understand not only what your customers want, but what your internal team needs to be able to deliver those solutions to customers. And so you got to kind of ask yourself, am I, am I focusing too much on the external world or do I need to focus a little more internal? Do I need to have a balance between the two? How can I best serve the, the, the folks that are actually on the journey with me, creating the value in the content and the, the solutions? Um, and how can I better amplify them is the way I like to think about it. Passion for what you're doing can come from unexpected places. Craig finds satisfaction in helping his customers solve problems and the little wins in his day-to-day. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> well, you get little wins, I think. Um, so yeah, big wins are good, but usually big wins um, are built on small wins. So I think what I always do is ask myself, hey, what can I do today? What's the little win I can get today to get to the big win tomorrow? And just continue to have that incremental process because it's never overnight success. It never happens that way. It usually takes a lot of luck and just a lot of these little wins that sort of stack on top of each other. So there you have it. The actionable insights that I had with my awesome interview with Craig. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.